In April and May, we've been focusing our attention on the life purpose of fellowship. How to really love one another. Our end objective is to sharpen our relationship skills to the point that what the Apostle Paul said of the church in Thessalonica could also be said of Springville Naz. That is, your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Once again, let's begin today's study with the key underlying principle that's the foundation to our current series of lessons on the life purpose of fellowship. And that is, when you come into a personal relationship with Christ, you also come into a personal relationship with other Christians. Belonging to a local body or family of believers is as much a part of being a Christian as belonging to Christ himself. God desires every Christ follower to be a functioning part of His church, partnering with others in an irresistible community where people discover and develop a life-changing relationship with Christ. How to really love one another. As we've been working our way through some of the key one another commands in the New Testament, so far we've taken a closer look at what it means to be members of one another, to be devoted to one another, to encourage one another, and then last Sunday to submit to one another. This morning in a lesson I've entitled How to Forgive Those Who Have Hurt You, we're going to zero in on yet another one another command repeated several times throughout the New Testament. One of these is found in Ephesians 4 and verse 32. Let's read it out loud together. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. In Colossians 3.13, the Apostle Paul worded it this way, Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. In the introduction to his book, The Art of Forgiving, Lewis Smedes writes, One of God's better jokes on us was to give us the power to remember the past and leave us no power to undo it. We've all sometimes been willing to trade almost anything for a magic sponge to wipe just a few moments off the tables of time. But whatever the mind can make of the future, it cannot silence a syllable of the past. There is no delete key for reality. And it comforts us little to know that not even God can undo what has been done. It would give us some comfort if we could only forget a past that we cannot change, but the ability to remember becomes an inability to forget when our memory is clogged with pain inflicted by people who did us wrong. If we could only choose to forget the cruelest moments, we could, as time goes on, free ourselves from the pain. But the wrong sticks like a nettle in our memory. The only way to remove the nettle is with a surgical procedure called forgiveness. It is not as though forgiving were the remedy of choice among other options, less effective but still useful. It is the only remedy. The remedy has existed since the first wrong done one human being by another. And yet people still punish themselves with the pains of a past long gone. Or punish others in a futile passion to get revenge. 
tribes slaughter tribes, ethnic groups assault other ethnic groups, and gangs shoot up other gangs. Couples break their marriages and divide their families into weeping pieces, all because they will not make use of the one means given to us for recovering from the insults and injuries of the past that never should have been. Forgiving, when you come down to it, is an art, a practical art, maybe the most neglected of all healing arts. It is the art of healing inner wounds inflicted by other people's wrongs. Boy, that's good. How to forgive those who have hurt you. This morning, let's take an in-depth look at what the Bible has to teach us about the art of forgiving one another. Now before we work our way through Jesus' words here in Matthew 18 and discover what it means to forgive one another, let's just stop right here and ask God to clearly speak to us this morning. Would you bow your head with me and pray? Father God, once again, we are your disciples. We're gathered at your feet to hear what practical instruction you have from your word. So we pray that you would open our eyes that we could see and our ears that we could hear, our minds so we could understand, most of all our hearts, so that we could receive the seed of truth that you want to plant there, that it would grow, that it would flourish, that it would bear fruit in our lives. We truly want to love one another. We want to learn how to forgive those who have hurt us. So teach us today, we pray. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Well, let's begin our Bible study by reading through the entire text, and then we'll break it down verse by verse and phrase by phrase. So follow along in your Bible as I read. Matthew chapter 18, we pick it up with verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. 
Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Then Jesus concludes with these words in verse 35, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Now it seems that today's text naturally divides itself into three distinct sections. First of all, the setting in verses 21 and 22. Look at them again with me in your Bible. Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but seventy-seven times. And so the setting for this parable on forgiveness is found in Peter's question in verse 21. Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Or as the contemporary English words it, Lord, how many times should I forgive someone who does something wrong and hurts me? Now notice that Peter suggests an answer to his own question at the end of verse 21. Up to seven times? Here's where it's important for us to understand the theology behind Peter's answer. You see, based on Job 33.29 and Amos 2 and verse 4, the majority of the Jewish rabbis in Peter's day taught that you only forgive someone three times. In fact, the Jewish Talmud read, quote, If a man commits an offense once, forgive him. A second time, forgive him. A third time, forgive him. The fourth time, do not forgive him. Unquote. So in that light, Peter's suggested answer seven times more than doubled the prevailing opinion of his day. But look again at Jesus' response in verse 22. I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times, or as some versions translate it, 70 times seven. Now, whichever translation we choose, it goes without saying that Jesus did not intend for us to take his answer literally. We're not to keep a ledger of our forgiveness and when the total reaches 77 or 490, whichever we choose, then we cut off our forgiveness. Such legalistic mathematics misses the whole point. Simply put, Jesus is teaching us that there is no offense so great or so frequent that it is beyond our ability to forgive. And to illustrate his point, Jesus then told a parable, a story. The story is found in verses 23 through 34. Now, I won't take the time to reread the entire story again. Let me just summarize it for you. In verse 23, we're told that a king wanted to settle accounts with his servants. That is, in modern terminology, an audit brought forth his accounts receivable. And he set out to collect from his debtors what was rightfully owed to him. In verses 24 through 27, we're introduced to a man who owed the king 10,000 talents. 
Now, a talent was a measure of gold, and to give you an idea of its value, scholars tell us that it would have taken the average wage earner in Jesus' day 19 years of work, seven days a week, to earn one talent. <laughs> and this servant owed the king 10,000 talents. I'm sure that when Jesus was telling this story originally, the audience that was there probably just laughed. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah, 10,000 talents. That's ridiculous. I mean, you do the math. It would have taken him 190,000 years to work off this debt. In other words, this was a debt that was impossible to pay. So, as was the custom of that day, the king ordered the man and his family and his possessions to be sold to repay the debt. Literally, they were condemned to spend the rest of their lives in debtor's prison in forced slave labor. Even that wouldn't have paid off the debt, but that was the penalty, the consequence, for this great offense. Yet amazingly, when the servant begged for the king's patience, the king's response was beyond anything that anyone could ever imagine. Verse 27 says the king took pity on him, canceled the debt. What? Yeah, canceled the debt and let him go. Again, I think the audience probably laughed when Jesus said this. That's crazy. Let him go? Yeah, free. Unbelievable. We pick up the rest of the story in verses 28 through 30. This same servant who had just been forgiven this incredible unpayable debt went to one of his fellow servants who owed him a very small sum by comparison, a hundred denarii, which was about three months' wages in Jesus' day. This servant demanded payment. When his fellow servant begged for patience, the first servant refused to listen. Instead, he had his fellow servant thrown into debtor's prison where... The first servant should have gone. Now in verses 31 through 34, when the king got wind of what had happened, he called this first servant back into his presence and he confronted him. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had on you? Now folks, that's a rhetorical question and the implied answer is, Duh! And in anger and disgust, the king reversed his original decision and threw the unforgiving servant into debtor's prison after all. That's the story, which brings us to the sense in verse 35. Look at it again with me. Jesus concludes this parable by saying, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Whoa. 
Here's the moral of the story then. The main principle Jesus intended to teach us about forgiveness in this parable. This is the punchline, folks. To grab the sense of what Jesus is saying to us, we of course must understand that the king in this story is God. And the first servant is us. Whereas the second servant is all the others around us. Got it? So here's the point of the story then. If we have experienced God's forgiveness of the impossible, unpayable offense of our sin, how can we do anything less than forgive the comparatively small offenses that others have done to us? Or to turn it around and ask it in a question form, What if God was only willing to forgive us to the same degree that we are willing to forgive others? Yikes. I heard someone put it this way. If the golden rule is to treat others as you would have them treat you, then the platinum rule is to treat others as you would have God treat you. One commentator summed it up like this, He who does not forgive others burns before him the bridge to God's forgiveness. Whatever else we may take away from Jesus' words here in Matthew 18, 21-35, this one thing is clear. Forgiving one another is a matter of utmost importance when it comes to building healthy, meaningful relationships with others. If we truly want to know how to really love one another, then forgiving one another is a vital part of this fellowship, this oneness that we've been talking about this past month, that we share in Christ. Well, that's a look at Matthew 18, 21-35, which leads us then to draw some conclusions. How are these verses in today's text relevant to Springville Church of the Nazarene? What are some specific ways that we can apply this command to forgive one another to our lives, both individually and congregationally? As we consider how to forgive those who have hurt you, I believe there are at least four steps involved in this forgiveness process. Number one, it all begins when we receive God's forgiveness. This is where it must start. When we receive God's forgiveness. Forgiving others begins by personally experiencing the forgiveness of God. It was because, you see, the first servant had been forgiven that he should have been willing to forgive his fellow servant. I mean, isn't that the point of the king's question in verse 33? Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? Duh. Yeah, of course. Again, both of the scriptures we read at the beginning of today's lesson also indicate that receiving God's forgiveness is a prerequisite to extending forgiveness to others. Ephesians 4, verse 32. Forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. See it? Colossians 3, 13. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. 
Again, this is where it all begins. When we receive God's amazing forgiveness of that impossible, unpayable debt of our sin. I'm talking here about embracing Jesus as the forgiver and the leader of your life. Becoming a Christian. Makes me stop right here and just ask this question. If you're here today and you have never experienced God's forgiveness, you have never put your trust and faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross for you, you've never said yes to Jesus, to the forgiveness that God offers. You've never named Jesus as the forgiver and the leader of your life. I'm going to ask you, why? What are you waiting for? Receive God's forgiveness today. In fact, there on your communication card on that bulletin flap that you tore off earlier in the service, there's a box that says, I'm interested in learning how to become a Christian. If you just check that box, we promise... I'll be like a flea on a dog, man. We're going to get in touch with you to help you because this is the most important decision you could ever make in your life. But that's where it all begins. We will not even begin to be able to forgive somebody else until first we've experienced God's forgiveness because we won't even understand what true forgiveness is until we've experienced the amazing forgiveness of God. So first, forgiving those who have hurt you requires that we receive God's forgiveness. Number two, if we're going to forgive those who have hurt us, we need to reveal our hurt. We need to reveal our hurt. Now the Bible is very clear that whether we are the offended or we are the offender, the responsibility is squarely on our shoulders to initiate the forgiveness process. You see, if we are the offended, somebody has hurt us, Matthew 18 and verse 15, Jesus said, If a fellow believer hurts you, go and tell him, work it out between the two of you. And if he listens, you've made a friend. Again, if, if you are the offended, somebody's hurt you, you don't wait around going, I'm going to wait till he or she apologizes to me. No. If you're a Christ follower, you take the initiative to go to the person who offended you. You make the first move. That's your responsibility in Christ. On the other side of the coin, if we are the offender, we're the one who has hurt somebody else. Now, we may have done that intentionally, or we may have done it accidentally, and we may not even know what it is we said or what it is we did. But obviously, somebody's ticked at us. (laughs) Obviously, we've hurt somebody. We can see that in the way they're acting toward us. And so if we are the offender, look at what Jesus said, Matthew 5, verses 23 and 24. In fact, let's read these words from Jesus out loud together. Read them with me. 
If you enter your place of worship and about to make an offering, you suddenly remember a grudge a friend has against you, abandon your offering, leave immediately, go to this friend and make things right. Then and only then come back and work things out with God. You see what Jesus is saying there? He is saying this forgiveness thing is so important that if you come to church on Sunday morning and you're sitting in the service and you're about ready to offer your worship to God and suddenly there comes to mind that there's something amiss between you and somebody else, you have somehow offended them, you've hurt them in some way, Jesus said you better get up out of your pew and leave the church service. You better go take care of that relationship first Make sure forgiveness happens and then come back to church and worship because you won't be able to fully worship God if there is an offense that hasn't been taken care of with your brother or sister in Christ. See what Jesus is saying here? If we're the offended or we are the offender, it is our responsibility to take the first step, to make the initiative to go and start the forgiveness process. Now again, think about how that happens. If this is truly happening in the church the way it ought to be happening, and we're really loving one another and forgiving one another, as the Bible teaches us here, and one brother has offended another brother or sister has offended another sister They both ought to be taking the initiative to go and make things right with the other person, which means that they are going to meet halfway in the middle because they're both on the way to take care of it. See how that works? That's the way it ought to work in the church. The pathway to forgiveness begins when we take the initiative to get the offense out in the open. Again, whether we are the offended, someone has hurt us, or the offender, we have hurt someone, we must make the first move. The process of forgiveness must begin with us. By the way, what happens most often when we've been hurt? (laughs) We tend to rehearse it with everybody around us. We don't talk to the person who's hurt us. We tend to talk to everybody else but that person. Come on. But the Bible says instead of that, we must reveal it to the person who's hurt us. Don't rehearse it with everybody else. Talk to the person that's hurt you. It's not everybody else's business. It's just between you and the person who's hurt. You've got to keep it in the circle that's involved, you see. Now, most of us don't like confrontation. We'd rather ignore our feelings or pretend that everything is just fine. Fine. I'm fine. Around our house, Karen and I call that the F word. Well, it is a four-letter word. Fine. Wrong. You don't sweep your feelings under the carpet, folks. You don't ignore them. You don't repress it. You reveal it. Ignoring what has happened is 
only going to lead to greater problems in the future. It's much better to get our herd out into the open so that we can deal with it head on. Someone put it this way. There is no closure without disclosure. Now I need to say something here because I've actually heard sermons where preachers have taught that you need to forgive and forget. Let me tell you, I think that's wrong. First of all, you can't forget. Only God can forget. God does forgive us. He forgets our sin. But we cannot do that because we have a memory and you can't wipe that memory clean. We're not God. In fact, I would go even further and say that you don't forgive and forget. You forgive as you reveal. You've got to actually remember the offense. You've got to get it out in the open. You've got to talk about it. You've got to work through it in order for forgiveness to take place. Forgiveness requires you remember, not that you forget. So second, forgiving those who have hurt you requires that we reveal our hurt. Number three, we need to release our offender. If we're going to forgive those who hurt us, we need to release our offender. Now there are two Greek words that are translated forgive in the New Testament. I put them there in your notes. The first one, aphiomi, from apa, from, and hiomi, to send. You put them together, it simply means literally to send away, as in sending away one's penalty or canceling one's debt. The second word, charismai, from charis, grace or favor, and didomi, to give. Put it together, it means to give grace or to give favor to someone. Now both of these words imply a releasing of the debt, a letting go of the injury or the insult. So how do we know? whether or not we've truly forgiven someone? It's a good question. And the Bible indicates that there are at least three tests of whether or not we've truly released someone who's hurt us. See how you do on this. Number one, are we keeping a ledger? Are we keeping a ledger? Now the answer should be no. 1 Corinthians 13.5 tells us that love keeps no record of wrongs. Literally an accounting term, a tally sheet, a ledger book. When it comes to offenses, we don't keep a record of those wrongs. We don't keep bringing up the past. I remember when you said this. I remember when you did that. Now sometimes we don't say that out loud. We don't acknowledge it out loud. But inside, we really are keeping a ledger, aren't we? We're keeping track of people's offenses. and We keep bringing it up. We won't let it go. We haven't really released that person from their debt. Are we keeping a ledger? Number two, are we seeking revenge? 
Hmm. Are we seeking revenge? Trying to even the score. Trying to get even. Trying to, you know, take it into our own hands. I mean, the, 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 the phrase is, hurt people hurt people. Huh. And that's true. Are we seeking revenge? Again, the answer ought to be no. Romans 12, verses 17 through 19 warns us, don't mistreat someone who's mistreated you, but try to earn the respect of others and do your best to live at peace with everyone. Dear friends, don't try to get even. Let God take revenge. In the Scriptures, the Lord says, I am the one to take revenge and pay them back. See, that's in God's hands. That's not for us to do. It will be payday someday. In God's own timing, He'll handle the matter. He'll even the score. He'll bring justice, righteousness. But in the meantime, we do not try to seek revenge. We don't try to hurt those who have hurt us. Again, whether we do that consciously or subconsciously. Are we seeking revenge? And then number three, are we extending blessing? Are we extending blessing? I think this is the ultimate test of forgiveness. To actually change our thinking from wanting to hurt those who hurt us to wanting to bless them instead. Proverbs 25 verses 21 and 22 puts it this way. Let's read these two verses out loud together. Read them with me. If you see your enemy hungry, go buy him lunch. If he's thirsty, bring him a drink. Your generosity will surprise him with goodness and God will look after you. That is his promise. If you trust him. You see, you've got to let go. And one of the ways you know you've let go, that you've released your offender, is that you have actually changed your thinking about them. You are no longer wanting to you know, get even with them. You're no, you're no longer wanting to keep a ledger of their offenses, but now you're actually extending blessing to them. You want what is good for them. You want God's best for them. You are blessing them rather than wanting to see ill come their way. Huh. That's the big test. And so we know we've truly been forgiven and released someone from their offense. When we're not keeping a ledger or seeking revenge, but instead we're extending blessing toward Him, or her. By the way, here's the irony of all this. The prisoner of an unforgiving spirit is the person who refuses to forgive. I mean, think about it. The person who's truly released is the person who's the forgiver, not so much the person who's forgiven. Hmm. So, third, forgiving those who have hurt you requires that we release our offender. Number four, we need to refocus our lives. Refocus our lives. Once we receive God's forgiveness and revealed our hurt and released our offender, it's time then to refocus our lives, to completely heal and to move on with the rest of our lives. The Apostle Paul captured the essence of this when he wrote in Philippians 3 and verse 13, I'm bringing all my energies to bear on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. You see, when we're unwilling to forgive, we become a slave to our past. We actually get stuck in the moment where we are hurt. 
Now folks, that's no way to live. The rest of our lives can be the best of our lives if we'll learn to forgive and move on. Lewis Smeads put it like this in The Art of Forgiving. Forgiving is the only way to heal the wounds of a past we cannot change and cannot forget. Forgiving changes a bitter memory into a graceful memory, a cowardly memory into a courageous memory, an enslaved memory into a free memory. Forgiving restores the self-respect that someone killed. And more than anything else, forgiving gives birth to hope for the future after our past illusions have been shattered. When we forgive, we bring in light where there was darkness. We summon positives to replace negatives. We open the door to an unseen future that our painful past had shut. When we forgive, we take God's hand, walk through the door, and stroll into the possibilities that wait for us. So forth, forgiving those who have hurt you requires that we refocus our lives. Now that brings us to a time of decision. How to really love one another. This morning we've taken a closer look at Matthew 18, 21 through 35, and how to forgive those who have hurt you. And as we do every Sunday, I want to challenge you to join me in completing a little homework in response to today's lesson. Look at your lesson notes there. Two things to do. First of all, there's a forgiveness self-inventory. Take some time to reread Matthew 18, 21 through 35 and review the four conclusions from today's lesson. And use the following questions as you prayerfully examine how well you're putting this practice the, into practice this command to forgive one another. First, have I personally experienced God's forgiveness in my own life by receiving Christ as the forgiver and leader of my life? And if not, why should I delay any longer? If so, spend some time reflecting on how great His forgiveness really is. Thanking Him for it. Second, what offenses do I need to reveal and get out in the open? With whom? Are there any hidden hurts that I've stuffed away? What's keeping me from dealing with them today? Third, with whom am I keeping a ledger of offenses right now? Am I secretly or even openly wanting to get even with someone? What steps can I take to move closer to fully and completely releasing this person, actually desiring what's best for him or her? And then finally, am I chained to my past due to an unforgiving spirit? What can I do this week to refocus my life and move on? Some great questions. Hope you'll join me in doing that homework. There's a second part of it, however. Look at it. Forgiveness self-study. Here's some suggestions to help you go even deeper in your study and application of forgiving one another. I suggest you look up the words forgive, forgiving, forgiveness, forgiven in a Bible concordance and you do a self-study of the subject in the Scriptures. Listen to what God has to say about it in His Word. And then read some of the leading Christian books on forgiveness, such as The Art of Forgiving that I've quoted from this morning by Lewis Meads. Or The Gift of Forgiveness by Charles Stanley. The Bait of Satan by John Bevere. When You've Been Wrong, Moving from Bitterness to Forgiveness by Erwin Letzer. The list goes on. Those are just some suggestions. And then finally, I've said if you're especially stuck, seek out the help of a professional Christian counselor to walk with you and to coach you through this forgiveness process. Get the help. Do whatever it takes to get unstuck. Well, let's close today's lesson by reading Colossians 3, verses 12 through 14 out loud together. 
So chosen by God for this new life of love, be quick to forgive an offense. Forgive as quickly and completely as the Master forgave you. This is how you can tell that you really love one another, by forgiving one another.